can let the uh, children be dismissed for junior church. <clears throat> and as they go, I'd like to, you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse 17. The Apostle Paul says this, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old life, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. I don't know if you <clears throat> look at your own life at times. And wonder, what's gone wrong? I don't know if you look around you at the world that you live in. You, you bring up the internet and you see the news pages. And do you ever say to yourself, what in the world is wrong? What has happened? When we began our series on family, we talked about God's original plan for marriage. And then we look at the, around at the world that we live in and we ask the same question, don't we? What has happened? Every person in this room that is married or has been married, been married remembers the day you got married. For me, it was June 21st, 28 years ago. Longest day of the year, June 21st, okay? <laughs> but a good day. <laughs> Rocco and Rachel uh, are getting married uh, June 21st, and I said to them, you know, that's the longest day of the year, and that's our anniversary, <laughs> So what happens? You go into it with all the joy, hope, expectations, and then you're yourself. You have children, love your life, and then they become two. And you're thinking, what happened? Right? You go into relationships, church relationships, and family relationships, extended relationships, in-law relationships, work relationships, governmental relationships. And what do you find? You consistently find there's this brokenness. 
And when I read Genesis 1 to 2, I find that God creates humanity and He creates marriage and He brings people together and they're excited and delighted in each other and there's complete and total innocence and everything is the way that it should be. You know, we look at the world and, and, and I've heard these four words used to describe our view of things. We, we know the way that things were. We can see that in Genesis 1 and 2. A world that God could say about it, it's all good. It's good. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's encouraging. It's a great place to be. But as we read on into Genesis 3, we find out the way things are. A world that is affected by brokenness, where sin has come in and disrupted those beautiful expectations that we had about all of our relationships. But as we read on in the gospel, what do we find out? We find out the way that things can be. When the Spirit of God moves in, converts hearts, people are born again, lives change and transform. And we see the way that things can be. And as you read through to the end of the Scriptures, what do you find? You find the way that things will be. And so all of us kind of live in a world where we know the way things were, we know the way they are. It's a broken world. We know that the, the way that they can be when we are yielded to the work of the Spirit of God in their lives. And we know the way one day they will be when God comes and brings a new heaven and earth in which dwells righteousness, the person of Christ, the indwelling presence of the Spirit in a fuller and more powerful way. And we long for that. What went wrong? Why are things the way they are? Well, Genesis 3 tells us that brokenness came into the context of relationships. It came in the context of the first foundational relationship, the culture marriage. And then everyone that was born out of that relationship bears the same tendency, the same bent. The Bible says that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That each one comes out saying, I want my way in life. It's manifest in various degrees, but it's true of all people. This wrestling with brokenness. That's what Ephesians 4, 7 through 17 through 19 is talking about. This idea of losing in verse 19, all sensitivity, giving selves over to sensuality, to selfish desires, to indulge in every kind of impurity, full of greed, what I want out of life. That's the essence of the world that we live in. Sin makes life sad. Sin brings sorrow into relationships where there was joy. But as I read this, in verse 17, Paul says, See, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And Gentiles here is just simply a category for people that don't know God yet, whose lives are captive to those things. There's hope here. Why? Paul's saying stop living like that, which implies what? It implies that God will enable us to live a different kind of life in our relationships, in our marriages, in our church lives. It, it, take the whole... Uh, if you will, the scope of relationships that we live within. If Paul says, don't live like that, he's not giving to us a directive that is impossible. He's giving to us something that is possible in the power of the Spirit of God. And it should, at one level, in a broken world, inspire hope in us. We know the way things can be when the children of God, the people of God, follow the Spirit of God. Life can be different. Our relationships can be above average. I think many of us settle for brokenness in our relationships. We settle for brokenness in our homes, for a weakness, for something that doesn't look like a home filled by the power of the Spirit of God. God aims through this text, I think, and I'm just going to deal with two areas. He aims to bring about a transformation in our relationships. 
And I'm focusing on this from the perspective of families, but I can't help but deal with this text in the broader scope of relationships in general in our lives. Because the principles are, in fact, transferable. How can things be? Verse 20 leads us into this discussion. This is not, however, the way that you learned about life when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to the former way of life. And here's what I want you to notice. You were taught in in regards to the old way of life to put it off, okay, and then to take up a new way of life and put it on. Okay, the analogy here simply is the analogy of clothing. Okay? When clothing gets dirty, what do you do? You shed it and you put on new clothing and it makes you fit to uh, live in the context of your home. The dirty clothing, hey, get rid of that, get that off, put on this new clothing and it makes you fit. It's it's a spiritual analogy, but it's from the literal realm. Okay, put on new clothing. That's the picture. And what is this new clothing like? Verse 23 helps us put off the corrupt and deceitful things be made new in the attitude of your minds put on the new self that is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness and that those two words righteousness and holiness describe character that lives in conformity with the directives and plans of God so the objective and goal of our lives by the power of the spirit should be what Put off the things that defile us and make us dirty and broken. And put on attitudes and a mindset that is life transforming by the power of the Spirit. That's the thrust of this text. Put off these things. Put on things that make you righteous and holy. And do that in the power of the Spirit of God. Now, what's the idea of the text? The idea of the text is this. God's aim in your life is a total transformation. All right, we have... Uh, TV shows that are called total makeovers, right? You can find something that is absolutely devastated and destroyed, and by the end of the TV show, in half an hour, it's amazing what can happen, right? You're like, what? This completely destroyed thing is resurrected and changed. That's the gospel, right? God takes your broken life, He makes you a new creation in Jesus Christ, and you become something glorious and beautiful. Right? That's the aim of the gospel, to take an old, broken down, depraved thing and to make it alive and gorgeous and beautiful. That's what God aims to do in our lives, a total transformation. What I want you to notice at the end verse 24 is we are told to put on this new self that is created to be like God. Now, here, I think, is a key that you must kind of capture. Okay, You don't create that new person. You don't make that happen. That's God. It is created in the passive sense in you by God. And then as you yield in that newness of the Spirit, what happens? That transformation begins to leak out into every area of life. That's what God aims to do. To remake you and to cause you to be, verse 24, a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Alright, so this transformation that comes as we put off the old and put on the new. So here's the picture. In Christ, according to this text, we have a position in Christ and we're involved in a process in our Christian life. Okay? In the past, when you place saving faith in Christ, 
repenting of your sin, trusting in what Christ has done, He causes you, by the power of the Spirit, to be born again. All right, that's an event that gives you a new position. You have become, by virtue of the new birth, a child of God's. You are not what you used to be. But you are not yet what you one day will be. And that's the frustration, isn't it? So, I'm changed. I'm given this new position. But what am I to do? I'm to, Philippians 2.13, work out your salvation. Flesh out the change that God has brought within. Let it begin to clothe your life so that you are changed. So, a new position in Christ. Righteousness that comes from Jesus. And now what happens? That righteousness, by the power of the Spirit, is seeking to be put on transforming us so that we experience a new birth in the past, a position before God in Jesus that then in process is worked out for the duration of our life here on earth. Okay, that's the essence, if you will, of the Christian life. This process we call progressive sanctification. Okay, it's the sense in which we, by virtue of decisions and choices that we make along the way, yielding to the power of the Spirit of God, become more and more of what Christ wants us to be. This text aims to help us deal with a few specific areas in that process. Okay, the text assumes something. It assumes that this individual is in a position of righteousness with Christ. They're part of the family of God. They've trusted in what Christ did for them on the cross and have been cleansed of their sin. Okay? And they, because of that new birth, are decidedly sent in a specific direction towards righteousness and holiness. It's how you know if true conversion has taken place. That decision in the past, that faith and trust in God, that regeneration that the Spirit of God has brought in your heart, now begins to work out in your life. Okay, and so to the person who has been changed and who now has ears to hear the Spirit of God, this text speaks very specifically. Okay, it doesn't assume that you can do this apart from the Spirit of God. It assumes the presence of the Spirit of God that comes at new birth. And as that person indwelt by the Spirit of God yields to his prompting and work, the knocking of him on the door of your life, and you open and say, please, Holy Spirit, change that. Work in this area. That as you yield to that, he moves you from what the Bible calls faith to faith or from righteousness to righteousness. Okay, there's an ongoing process. Every marriage needs this. Every relationship needs this. Every Christian needs this. We don't stand static in Christ. We are active participants in the grace of God. Enabled, and we, we say this over and over, yes, everything that's happening is only by the grace of God and by the power of God, but I need to yield to that in this exercise of putting off the old self and putting on the new self that has been renewed by the power of God. So, our hope is in this new birth, but there's, from that new birth, there flows a process. And what I want to do is focus on two aspects of this text that deal directly with the issue of our relationship, particularly in our marriage, and then also in the broader relationships of our lives. So, it's a text that deals with four issues, truth-telling, anger, theft, and unwholesome words. Okay, I'm going to focus on the issue of anger and how God addresses it, and then also on the issue of speaking to one another with wholesome words. Okay, so let's uh, start our focus here. And, and each one of these is going to follow a pattern. Okay, there's going to be a prohibition, something in our life that needs to stop. Okay, what does that assume? It assumes that Christians will wrestle with these categories of sin. 
Okay, even though we have a new position in Christ, what happens? We're trying to work it out, but we work it out in a hostile environment. We have an enemy, an opponent, who actively seeks to do what? To throw sticks between our legs to cause us to stumble. He is scandalous, and that word is that he throws a stick between our legs on the path of process, progress, right? To do what? To trip us up. So what do we need to do? We need to be aware of that and continue in this process. So the first thing there is, is there a prohibition to stop something, then there is an encouragement to do something, and then there is a reason for that obedience. Okay, and you'll you'll notice this pattern in all four. We'll focus this morning on two specifically. Okay, verse 26 of our text. Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down when you are angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Okay, now notice the flow. This is, the prohibition is, in your anger, don't sin. The exhortation or encouragement is, do not let the sun go down while you are angry. That's the thing that you need to work with. And then the motive is, don't give the devil a foothold. Okay? So the, the, the prohibition, don't be angry. Secondly, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Third, the motive. You give Satan a foothold in your life. Okay, so just a real simple flow. So let's look at the prohibition here. And the thrust of these verses is anger is permitted and restricted. Okay, because I know what all of you are thinking. Didn't Jesus get angry? All right. In the temple, didn't he demonstrate a righteous indignation, right? And the answer is, yes, he did. But this text gives us this thought. Anger is permitted, but it is restricted. Okay? So let's first look at the prohibition of this text. Don't sin in your anger. The way the New International Version says it is, in your anger, do not sin. Some translations say, if you are angry, don't sin. Okay, so... What's prohibited here? What's prohibited, what we are cautioned strongly against is anger that runs outside of God-given boundaries and appropriateness. Okay? And I think the thrust of the text would be something like this. Anger in the life of Christians should be rare. Okay? Why? Because what does anger tend to do? It tends to corrupt very quickly. Okay, it can, it can move in the wrong, wrong direction suddenly and almost in a sense certainly if it is held on to for a long time. It quickly or easily becomes sin. It tends towards corruption. Okay, if you uh, have fruit around your house and you let it sit too long, what do you know? You, most moms will say this, to, hey, would you eat that fruit? Why mom? Because if you don't, it's going to what? going to go bad. It's going to rot. It's going to move in a negative direction. Anger is like that. It's not prohibited, but there is a strong caution and restriction that is attached to it. Okay? Why? In your anger, don't sin. What does that mean? It means that anger can naturally and quickly move in a bad direction. It easily crosses lines. And so here's the way I like to think of anger. Okay, it has, it's like a, an electrical transformer that has signs on it that says high voltage. Okay, is electric a good thing? 
After Hurricane Sandy, what do you think? Is electricity a good thing? Yeah. I mean, living without it was brutal, right? Life had come to an end. Okay? Are we in the last days? We don't have electric. Right? It's, we love it. Is it dangerous? Okay, I can tell you this. I've worked with electricity. I am not a professional electrician. Therefore, I've experienced things with electricity that people shouldn't experience. Okay? You, when you're working with electricity, you should be careful. Okay? You don't get the nickname Sparky for nothing, right? When you see the company Sparky Electric, don't hire them. Okay? Electricity is wonderful. It's powerful. It does awesome things, and it can kill if you don't heed the warning. I was driving down the road, uh, River Road, I think it is, that goes down uh, towards Frenchtown. There's a uh, closed-down uh, manufacturing facility of some kind. I'm not even sure what it is. But about two years ago, when copper prices had gone up very high, an individual with a friend had gone in there to steal copper. They cut the main line to the plant, and it was still hot. Killed the guy on the spot. Okay? I'm afraid of electricity because I've been, three or four times I've gotten bitten by it. And I have a higher degree of respect for it. Okay? This text kind of moves in this kind of a way. There are times when anger is appropriate, but it is always dangerous. Okay? That's true in the context of all our relationships. It is a high-voltage thing that we deal with. Now, if you say to me, is there a place for righteous indignation? Okay, for is, is there an anger that is utterly appropriate? Now, this text says, be angry in the imperative. Okay, it's a directive. But in your anger, in the imperative, don't sin. And those two things kind of couple together, I think, to, to soften this idea of anger so that I don't feel uninhibited in it or without guardrails in it. Okay, it should be something that we deal with very cautiously because it can tend towards being devastating and destructive to people. Illustrations of righteous indignation. If you saw anything of the case of Dr. Gosnell, the man that was accused or, and, and finally convicted of killing babies, okay, I hope you felt in your heart a sense of righteous indignation. When those three girls were discovered in the home in, I think, in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, I hope you felt in your heart, that's wrong. Things shouldn't be that way. They need to be better. I hope you, you felt in your heart something, something rose up against that. That should happen in our lives. But there is a subtle temptation in, in righteous indignation to feel that in situations of conflict, I'm right, and, and the other person is just ill-tempered. Okay, it's very easy for us to feel that way. Okay, and this text says to us, in the context of our homes, in the context of our, our relationships, in our marriages, in your anger, don't sin. It quickly converts to something that is wrong and destructive. So we're called by this text to be careful with it. Now, what's the encouragement? The encouragement of the text is, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Okay? What's the implication? The implication is that when you're wrestling with it, when you're dealing with it, God wants you to pursue it and resolve it quickly. Okay? And the idea of don't let it go down on your anger is drawing on a couple Old Testament directives. One was if you 
took someone's cloak as a pledge for money that you owed to them, before the sun went down, what did you have to do? You had to return their coat. Why? Because it was their blanket at night. All right, and if you hired a poor person who lived on daily wages, you had to pay them before what? Before sundown. Why? They needed it to provide food for their family that night. It's the idea here. Okay, don't let the sun set on anger. The idea is, it doesn't necessarily mean this 24-hour period. It means deal with it quickly. Make sure that it is by the power of God resolved. So James, chapter 1, verse 19 says this, Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because the wrath of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. Okay? Now that's weird, because that sounds contradictory to this verse, doesn't it? Be angry, don't sin. James says the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So what is he saying? He's saying there is a definite tendency for long anger to move towards corruption, to become destructive in the heart of the person that bears it. Now, the third part is the motive. Verse 27, it says, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, what's interesting here? It does, this, this is one of the, I think, of two times in the New Testament when the word devil is used to describe Satan. Okay, and the word here is that he is a slanderer. Okay, that he is a destructive individual. And if I allow anger to fester and to grow and to become other things, what happens? I give Satan a place of operation. Uh, some of your translations may don't give, say, don't give the devil an opportunity, right? Is that what some of your translations say, something like that? Don't give him a place. Don't give him a base of operation. Don't give him a place where he can get footing in your life. Okay, anyone that's wrestled knows that your footing is critical. If you don't have one foot out from underneath of yourself and firmly placed, you are an easy target. You're going to get run over, okay? And when we stay in anger, what are we doing? We're standing flat-footed in a battle. Okay? And we become an easy target for Satan. And what does he do? He moves in and brings about destruction. The idea is something like this. All right? If you're wrestling uh, with overeating, okay? Here's what I would encourage you to do. And I need to learn this, okay? Don't stock your pantry with Twinkies. Okay? <laughs> Why? Because I'm giving a place for that temptation to thrive and bring destruction, right? It would be foolish to say, I'm trying to fight that, but I'm going to stock my pantry with this, right? And same thing is true in regards to anger. Keep it brief. Don't let the sun go down on it, because if, you, if I harbor it, what happens? I give Satan a a place where he can move in and begin to do destructive things in my life. Okay, so the, the, the warning of this text is then followed up by this motive. You can defeat the evil one if you fight these kinds of sins in your life. But if you let them stay in your life, what happens? I give him a place to operate. And the ugliness that I see in Genesis 3 rising begins to take over because I'm giving him a place to work. That's what Adam and Eve did, Right? Satan came and they entertained a conversation with him. A conversation that said, you know, it's really not that serious. If you eat of it, you're not going to die. Anger won't hurt us. Right? Isn't that what we think? Or my anger is just, it's, it's okay. No, God says, deal with it quickly. Because it moves towards corruption. 
And the one thing I think I want to say to you this morning is this. The source of my anger is not Satan. Okay, this text makes no attempt to say that the anger that you're experiencing is a work of Satan. It's a work of your flesh. And Satan moves in when your flesh is in control and capitalizes on it. Does that make sense? So what do we say? Well, you know the old saying, the devil made me do it. Well, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. We give him a base of operation. We give him a foothold in our life. And he leverages us and throws us. That's the picture. Okay, so I don't need to go around blaming Satan for everything in my life that's bad. I need to take responsibility for my attitudes and choices and for how I deal with things, for my marriage and how I deal with my mate, for my kids and how I deal with them. It's just very easy to shift the blame. Well, you know what? Take the blame and confess that to Christ. And when you do, you defeat the works of the evil one. That's what the blood of Christ is meant to do. To drive that sin out and to bring restoration and hope in our relationships. To take things from the way they are to the way that they can be by the power of the Spirit with the hope that one day things will be so awesome and glorious. Okay, so the first encouragement is don't let anger rest in your life. What does it do? It makes marriages vulnerable and weak. Okay, when we, when we harbor, we say, no, I can contain this. No, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't. So the text encourages us, deal with it, because anger then <clears throat> tends to do what? Anger tends to prompt rash words, right? Because most of the time, you know that someone's angry by how? Well, they, they blow up on you. And then you're like, oh, okay, I must have messed up somewhere or something happened or whatever, right? Those rash words become an evidence that anger is present. Which leads us to the next text that I want us to look at in verse 29. Verse 29 says this. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, do you, see, do you see the way this works? Prohibition is what? Don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Secondly, what should I do? Okay, I should only speak words that are helpful for building others up. Why? Because if I don't speak words that build others up, I grieve the Spirit of God. Okay, that's the... The flow of prohibition and encouragement and the reason why. So let's deal with this second picture here. All right, the idea of let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth. The word for unwholesome is a word that's used to describe either rotting fish or rotting fruit. Okay, both images quickly, all right, bring up kind of that wrinkle on your face. You're like, ugh. Okay, rotting fish is a very strong smell, right? It's one of the strongest things you ever pick up and you just be like, wow. I mean, fresh fish doesn't smell good. I don't hear anybody saying, wow, the smell of fresh fish is wonderful, right? Don't do that. You do it with fruit, you may do it with vegetables, but you know, with fish, okay? But when it turns rancid, what's it like? Truth is, it's pretty much unbearable. It is, it is devastating. So why this analogy and why does Paul pick this up, okay? I think Paul picks this word up 
to describe our words because our words are reflective of what? Our heart, right? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay, now we live in a culture that has taken it to a whole new level with corrupt speech, with unwholesome words. In the realm of comedy, obscenity, and crude jesting has become a form of entertainment. That's the world I live in. Were words that if I ever spoke them, I don't even know if I would still be here, if I did it in front of my dad, have become adjectives, adverbs, and verbs. Right? There's a, there's a sense of a, of, a, of a crudeness, of a brokenness that has come over the culture that we live in. A, a, and, and there's an attitude of disrespect that goes along with it and a whole lot of other things. Why? Because those words reveal our heart. Obscene language, vulgarity, dirty jokes, pornographic language, racial insults, sarcasm, harsh words, gossip, public criticism of one's spouse, yelling at our children, endless criticism, talk, that's, talk that delights in weaknesses, conversation that spreads decay. And we use this word in sports, don't we? We talk about trash talk, right? I'm not, I'm not going after the kind of joking around that goes on in an athletic event, okay? I'm not saying that's wrong, okay? But the idea of trash talk is what? It's talk that has rotted, right? I mean, that's the idea of it. It's talking down on someone, Right? It's kind of throwing them in the trash can. And Paul here, in a very categoric way, forbids that kind of talk. He doesn't say, I'm suggesting that you don't do this. He says, put away all unwholesome talk. All, all talk that tends towards corruption, that moves in a negative direction, that has a negative effect on others. What he's saying? He's saying, put that, it's a comprehensive and categoric prohibition. Okay, which means what? I have work to do. We each have work to do in our lives. Because this is a a war. This is a battle. Why is the prohibition so strong? Okay, why does Paul launch such huge missiles at this issue? Why? And I think the answer is is somewhere along these lines from the book of James chapter 3. Words can be incredibly destructive. James chapter 3 says this. It says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. And in the comparison, what? It's like a small spark. In regards to what it can do, it looks seemingly insignificant, like it could never bring about such great damage. When I was, I think, about 15 years old, we worked at a dairy farm. We filled a barn with hay about a week before an event that I'll tell you about. Okay? I was going home from work one night, looked down the road to the right, and noticed that barn that we had filled with hay was fully engulfed in flames. Okay? Oh, you know, hey, you can see through the cracks of some of the old barns. The barn literally looked like a Christmas display, glowing red. Uh, okay, that's not good. Went down, the firemen were coming, and they, they put out the fire, but it totally destroyed everything. I had to go in and get a couple, not heroically, okay, this thing was just burning way up top. Uh, had to get a couple tractors out and a couple uh, horses out, and then the building was completely consumed. And you're thinking, what happened? What happened? Found out a day later that people saw two children running from that barn. What were they doing when they found them? Well, they had a story. They were flicking matches into the loose straw on the floor of the barn. 
And then what did they do? They watched it burn for a little while, and they'd run up and stomp it out. And they kept doing that. And the rest is history, right? What were they thinking? They, well, what were they doing? They were playing with fire. Okay, what does James do in this text? He says, your tongue, not your tongue itself, but what comes off of it is a fire. Okay, it is, it has the capacity to bring about very severe destruction. Verse 6, he goes on to say, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil. Listen, and and, and I'll challenge you to do this. Go find other things in Scripture that are described with this degree of detail and fear. Okay, listen to what this says. He says, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of your body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by, do you know the next word? It itself is set on fire by hell. Okay, who lives there? The devil. That's the place created for him. So what is James saying? That when our tongues are out of control, okay, and we're speaking things that are destructive, what happens? It's a world of iniquity. It is, it is a complete, self-contained, destructive effect. That's why the caution is so strong. Because the one behind the power of destructive words is evil and intends to do evil. Another reason is that we should avoid this kind of negative putrid talk, rotten talk, is that words can kill. Proverbs 12, verse 18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. And what's the purpose of thrusting a sword? It's not to bless somebody, right? It's to kill. It's to steal life. What's the encouragement then that is given in this very sobering passage of Scripture? Okay, here's the encouragement. Don't let unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up in accordance with their needs that it may benefit the one who listens or hears. Okay, so the aim of these words is what? That, that, that the individual would be encouraged. So here's what's neat, okay? In the same sense that our tongues and words have the incredible capacity to lower and to cut down, what do they also have the ability to do? They have the ability to build up. So in my flesh, what happens? My words go towards decay. But in the presence and power of the Spirit of God, what happens? My words tend to build up and encourage and bless. Okay? And that's the, in a sense, if you will, the thrust of this text. The encouragement is to find good words. The solution in the text is not silence. Okay, and sometimes here's what we think. Well, I didn't say anything bad. Right? But what does God want us, want us to do? He gives us a prohibition out of this. Speak words that build up and then encourage others. Let's do that for one another. Okay? Your words have power to bring a wonderful change in people's lives. As you yield to the Spirit of God and He begins to exert control over this important area of our lives. Sometimes as parents will say to our kids, if you can't say something good, Don't say anything. Okay? Is that biblical advice? Well, in the the heated moment, it's probably wise advice. 
but it's not enough. Okay? What do we need to do as mom and dad? We need to model for our kids how to speak words that encourage. Okay? And we need to guard ourselves in this area because it's very easy for us to drift off the path in this way. Okay? And to speak words that become hurtful without us having a full grasp of that. Colossians 4 talks about words that give grace, that this idea of help from God. Let your words be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to respond to each person. Proverbs says that words have the capacity to bring healing. It says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Okay, fitly meaning timely, appropriate. Okay, words can be powerful. And I'm sure somewhere along the way in your life, you've had it happen both ways. Where something was said that was just utterly and completely devastating. Or something was said that caused you to walk away with a smile on your face saying, I never thought, I, thank you. Okay. Uh, they, just, they just have great power and there are, are, are things that the Spirit of God wants to use in our lives. Words can bring healing. Words also can bring correction. The book of Proverbs says this, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Right? And you don't say, our typical response isn't, oh, you know, thank you. But sometimes you think back and you're like, you know what? That's exactly what I needed to hear. Now, I've had that happen in my life. Had that happen recently. Uh, where someone had the courage and the, the favor to let me know about something in my life personally that they thought I needed to work on. And uh, thank God for that. It was a blind spot for me. All right, they pointed it out, and you know what? Sought by the, you know, once you hear it, you have the convicting power of the Spirit of saying, yeah, you need to work on that in this relationship in your life. Right? And hopefully we, we take the lead from the Spirit as He prompts us. We begin to work on that area. Okay, why? All of us have blind spots. Okay, I'm confident that the average parent that takes it up too loud with their kids has probably never really thought about what that's saying to their kids and how it hurts them. Okay, sometimes even in joking with, with our mates in front of other people, what happens? We can be hurting and injuring and wounding not only our mate, but the people around us. Okay, and God, God cautions us. Don't use bad speech that tears down. Use good speech that builds up. That's the encouragement. What's the motive? The motive is... That harsh words in context here grieve the Spirit of God. Verse 30 starts out by saying this, And do not grieve the Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I want to make a connection between this and the book of James chapter 3 and verse 7. Talking about the tongue, James makes this statement, okay? He talks about how devastating words can be. But then he says this, and it's almost like he gives you an out, that if you can't control your tongue, that's fine, because no one else can either. Okay? Notice, listen to what he says. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil that is full of deadly poison. So, to what end then, James, do you make that observation? And I think the point here, as you go back to the book of Ephesians, is what? I can't control my tongue by myself. 
But as I yield to the power of the Spirit of God, what can happen? That thing that has brought destruction and devastation into the lives of people can be changed by the power of God. So don't, don't, think, don't hear me saying this morning, you know what, if you have struggles in the context of your relationships, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, just stop saying bad things. Like a stop sign. Okay? Because the text says what? You can't stop it. Which should cause you to what? Go to God and say, God, I am a sinner. I am decidedly bent towards selfishness. My words are decidedly bent towards that which is wrong. And apart from the power of your spirit, putting off the old words and putting on words that help and build up. Apart from the spirit of God, entering into that process and moving me from where I am to where I need to be. I can't do it. So here, my desire would be this. That you would look at the issue of anger and that you would look at the issue of your tongue and you would say, these are means by which or ways by which I have been grieving the Spirit of God. And the idea is to bring upsetness and wound, injury, hurt to the Spirit of God. It is, in a sense, to spurn or to drive away His prompting. What does God want me to do? What's the putting on? The putting on is turning towards the Spirit of God and saying, speak into my life. Speak to me about my anger. Speak to me about my words. And let my life, as I listen to you, be reoriented and redirected so that anger and unwholesome speech don't destroy my life. Okay, but with this caveat, God, I can't do this. The tongue, no one can tame. So cause your spirit to so strongly flow and work through me that my life is changed. And here's the cool thing. Look at the last two verses of this text. It says... Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. One writer called that the stairway to hell. Instead, what? And this is put on. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. There is the supreme motive for obedience, right? Be kind and compassionate. That's the... That's the encouragement, right? And the motive is because Christ has forgiven you. All right, so what happens? The gospel begins to inform the words that come out of my mouth. It begins to inform how I deal with anger when it's present in my life. And as I become a person who is yielded to the presence of the Spirit of God, as opposed to grieving the Spirit of God, transformation begins to take place. And what happens? Well, I remember the way that I was before Christ in sin. The Spirit of God comes into our lives. What does He do? He starts to bring change. And we realize the way that we can be if we're willing to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. And as we're moving in that direction with all of our struggles and weaknesses and all that stuff, okay, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about the grace of God that has forgiven us and cleansed us. And it's motivating us to live transformed lives. And in the end, what happens? In the end, we look forward to what we will be. And what we will be is so glorious and so beautiful and so encouraging and so owing to the grace of God that it humbles us and causes us to walk under the power and direction of the Spirit of God. Folks, that's what God wants to do. He wants to take the difficult areas in our relationships of anger, the difficult area of unwholesome speech, and He wants to put us through a process of transformation. What I'd like to call this text at one level is this. I'd like to call it replacement theology. Okay? Put off this and put on this. These are the things Satan wants to bring in your life. These are the things the Spirit of God 
wants to bring in your life. Put off this. Put on this. And let God begin to change you. Okay? And, and just deal with two out of this text today. Okay? Two areas where God wants to change us. Two areas in which change can only come by the power of the Spirit of God. And that is all owing to the grace of God. First Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, the word of the cross is to those that are perishing foolishness. But to those that are being saved, it is the power of God. You know the first word that changes you? that overcomes all the bad stuff in your life is the word of the gospel that someone spoke into your life. And it is a word that is powerful, that is life-changing, and it is a word that will give you hope that things can be different today in your life. And if you've never trusted Christ, my encouragement to you this morning is forget everything I've said because you can't do it in your own strength. You can't. Neither can I. My encouragement to you this morning would be this. Fall on your knees and go before Christ and say, Jesus, I am a broken sinner. I repent of my sin and I trust in your finished work on Calvary's cross. Change my heart. Move from the inside to the outside of my life. Bring true transformation for your glory and for the glory of our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray this morning.